Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On today's show, we've got ICE infiltration in city courts, a map of languages spoken in NYC, and a genre-bending Afrofuturistic voyage. Hi, welcome to the show. Ashley's out sick today, but we hope she gets better very, very soon. In the meantime, I'm Brian Vines. Thanks for uh, sticking with us today. We've got a really interesting show, everything from ICE agents in New York City courts to a black comic book festival, yes. But before we get into any of that, here are today's headlines. Now, about four years ago, New York State legalized medical marijuana. Some say as a stalking horse for legalizing recreational use. And as with climate change, the current administration prefers to drive this trend backwards. Last week, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a decision to do away with Obama-era weed decriminalization, sicking the feds on even states where it's legal. Now, Colorado Republicans weren't too happy with the news because, you see, marijuana industry now is their latest cash cow. But what about New York Republicans, specifically ones representing or wishing to represent Brooklyn? New York's 11th Congressional District Representative Dan Donovan says we should leave it up to states to decide. Sounds good from here. But Michael Graham, the convicted felon who is trying to take back the seat he once held, says that he supports Sessions. And we all should, too. He also backed the president in his fight with Steve Bannon last week. Seems his recipe for election success is Trump train or bust. Thinking it may be a bust on that one. Also, a 400-acre plot of polluted marshland in Jamaica Bay might become Brooklyn's next big park. The area has never been open to the public and belonged to the Department of Sanitation for almost 30 years. Once cleaned up, the park will supposedly include hiking and biking trails, kayaking, fishing, an amphitheater, and oysters. The area might even become Brooklyn's third largest park. Begging the question, what are one and two? Now, I know Prospect Park is one of them, but what's the other? Sounds like today's trivia question to me. Send your answers on over to us at 112bkcomments at brickartsmedia.org. Yeah, we will read all of your answers. And if you hadn't noticed, the city seems to be having a tough time battling some intense weather lately. Things got really crazy on one block in Prospect Lefferts Gardens where a water main broke, flooding the entire street and then freezing over, creating a slab of ice that spanned nine homes. Yeah, it's time to break out those skates. But speaking of ice, and I'm not talking about the weather variety, we'll be back in a moment to discuss how immigration and customs enforcement is infiltrating city courts. Don't go away. Immigration and customs enforcement arrest or attempted arrest in New York City courts were up 900% last year. And in Brooklyn in November, public defenders staged a walkout and protest when a client of legal aid attorneys was grabbed in local court by the feds and put through the deportation process. We have with us today Legal Aid's supervising attorney in the Community Justice Unit, Anthony Posada, 
And he's here to tell us about that incident and what kind of chill this is sending through the city's courts. Thanks for joining us on 112BK today, Anthony. Thank you for having me. So the incident, like November was not so far away and we hear this chilling effect thing, but really what happened at the courts in November? So uh, our client was there to make his regularly scheduled court appearance mm -hmm. uh, the way thousands of New Yorkers are doing this very minute and yeah. have been doing. Uh, but unbeknownst to him, uh, ICE agents were waiting for him to show up. Um, the attorney who was accompanying the client to make his court appearance was told about the presence of ICE and she went to go speak to her client. Mm -hmm. And immediately that's when a sort of chaos ensued sort of situation because the ICE agents immediately came out and prevented the attorney from speaking to the client. Yeah. Um, How so, many people are we talking about? Are you aware? Uh, we're probably talking about four or five agents, but okay. then you have court officers involved, so the scene starts to multiply and now you have more people are involved. Are court officers aware when ICE agents are in the building? Courts are a public building. Anyone who passes through a metal detector can be present. So are they made aware or are they just randos in the building? So the way we understand the po a memo that was issued by the Office of Court Administration mm -hmm. in April of 2017, it set forward a process that if ICE was to show up in the courthouses, right. that they were to notify the court officers who would notify the presiding judge gotcha. and sort of follow that chain of command. Um, are there instances where court officers are tipped of ICE or they are the ones providing information to ICE about undocumented folks making scheduled appearances? Yeah. That, that's hap that happens mm -hmm. and is happening. Uh, so having ICE in the courthouses, doesn't always mean that the court officers are going to let us know that that's happening. Yeah. In fact, when we started to see this uh, situation playing out as of the early days of 2017, right. when Trump signed those executive orders that made people priorities for deportation just for having an open case, meaning you didn't have to have a prior criminal conviction, we started to spot what we started to think were like ICE vans mm. or just the presence of eight law enforcement agents that right. are not your common NYPD detective or officer showing yeah. up as a witness to court, but rather, okay, what's going on here and yeah. why are they acting like this? So when you say ICE agents, people might have this vision of a guy who shows up in RoboCop sunglasses and he's got this van, this you know uniform and pepper spray. But just myself, in the preparation of you coming here, I Googled ICE in courts and YouTube has about 38,000 videos of people standing by in court, whipping out their phone when these ICE agents are acting on someone. And there are dudes in plaid shirts with beards and they're not official looking. It's like if I walked out of this room and this woman in the red sweater over here just tackled me and then said, yo, I'm with ICE. They're not official looking. Correct, so they're not robots, they're not drones, yeah. right? They don't come out with flashy gear or steam. They're or people. uniforms. Correct, right? They're, they're wearing plain clothes. Yeah. Um, sometimes hats, yeah. but you can't have, they don't have identifying insignia on them that right. would say, you know, we're ICE agents the way they sort of wear when they do a raid. Right. But even when they do a raid, sometimes those uniforms, just to add this, they have 
a title that says police yeah. that throws people off. Like you so can buy the costume shop. So you're like a police, but you're police. So the co undocumented community, already in panic, already in fear, yeah. scared to go to court, uh -huh. scared to leave their homes, many of them, when we were having so many of these ICE raids. Yeah. How could they pick apart who was who, and, and how could you verify that those people were not ICE agents that we no. just saw? Before you go on any further, let people think, you know what, they're criminals and they are here in court because they're bad guys. This is not always the case. Someone who's testifying in a court case to put away a bad guy could find themselves on the receiving end of an ICE takedown. That's, that's absolutely correct. So I, my position, or rather what I would say to people who are of that mindset or believe in that, is that if somebody is the victim of a crime and they have to show up to testify, they're going to be afraid to do it if they're undocumented, right. right? So your court system is now being undermined and its integrity is in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. So because the Constitution says, you know, regardless of who steps foot on this land, the Constitution is what rules. And when you undermine a bedrock principle like access to justice, mm -hmm. you're affecting everybody, the entire population. So, so someone's yelling at you right now, access to justice is something that is a bedrock and very important, but so is access to a safe country with secure borders. To the whole notion of criminals, right? Let's, mm -hmm. let's take apart this number of 117 arrests in 2017, which represents that 900% spike. Okay. In that number, you have a lot of people being arrested in traffic court, right. family court. So listen, you do a little rolling stop at a stop sign, you get a ticket to show up, and you're a criminal, you're, and you become a deportee. You're in process to be removed from this country. So. Why is that a big deal? If ICE is going to find you eventually, does it matter whether they're in the court or whether they knock on your door? This movie ends the same way. There should be a process. There should be a way in which people don't have to deal with feeling threatened to go to court mm -hmm. because that immediately disrupts the whole nature of why they're going to go to court in the first place. I mean, where let's all right, let's use traffic stops, criminal court case, family court. Mm -hmm. If you're going there to petition for custody of your loved ones, uh, now you can do that, right? There's an area where we're not talking about crimes. We're getting away from that. Yeah. Let's just talk about people on day-to-day -day life trying to say, you know what, I want to have access to my kids and I want to see them, or I feel like you should pay child support. Mm -hmm. And now, all of a sudden, this idea that if I go to court, I'm going to get picked up by ICE mm -hmm. sinks into me. I might, I don't want to go to family court. I'm, I'm going to think that twice. So, Anthony, build a squad for me. My mother's mother was born in this country. Where does the rubber meet the road for someone who says, I'm an American, I'll never have to deal with this, why should I care if they get picked up at the court? They should care because these are the same courthouses that natural born citizens are going to. Yeah. So you see this whole idea that, well, it's because they're undocumented and it's because they're criminals that we don't care about them. Well, the, the problem is that 
the care is about the institution that is being accessed, which is the courts. Yeah. If the courts themselves cannot be accessed the way that they should be functioning as a natural born citizen, you should be concerned. You should be concerned because you never know when you have to access the court system for whatever it is, right? Whether it's immigration, whether it's actually you want to start a business and you somehow find yourself needing legal advice. All of this, those are things that natural born citizens care about. I, I don't I don't know that I've talked to a lot of citizens who say that they want their court systems to be uh, broken, flawed, or yeah. are rooting for that. Right. So where do we stand now? We saw a big spike last year and that 900% number jumps out again. So where are we now? And I want to ask specifically in your instance, what does civil unrest look like for a bunch of lawyers? court officers, how do you stand in that gap? So as uh, court officers, we do have to abide by ethical rules and our responsibilities and duties to the court as court officers. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, we have an ethical duty of zealous representation to our clients, effective representation. Um, where do we stand now? Or rather, let me finish that. Civil unrest for public defenders and for lawyers is real. We saw it in the walkout that was staged. We saw it in the rally that was held at the steps of City Hall. I mean, right here in Borough Hall. Yeah. And it showed in those two instances that when you have integral players of the court denouncing these actions happening, that people start to listen or that people start to pay attention. And so, well, we're paying attention. We're, <laughs> we're here now. We're having this conversation. And we appreciate the conversation. you got to come back. That's Anthony Posada, the supervising attorney for Community Justice Unit at Legal Aid Society. We appreciate you being here, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, next up, ever wonder how many languages are spoken in New York City? One linguist turned that curiosity into a years-long project, and he'll be here to tell us all about it. New York City is arguably the most diverse city in the world. But don't take it from me, take it from our next guest, who's made it his job to map the city's languages, including ones that are highly endangered. What does that mean? Well, we're gonna welcome Ross Perlin, the co-director at Endangered Language Alliance, to tell us about his work and what they're learning about our city and what can be done to preserve this trove of language. Thanks for joining us on 112BK. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. So, I read somewhere there were seven to 8,000 languages that are recognized and spoken in the globe. So seven to 8,000 in the world, how many languages are spoken in the confines of New York City? Approximately 10% of those. There's always a question, what's a language, what's a dialect? It yeah. can get very political. It's, you know, linguists often have different ideas about that than, than, than people do. But, yeah. uh, but basically, you're talking about 10% of the world's languages, maybe up to 800 languages spoken in the New York metropolitan area. Okay. The most diverse, linguistically diverse city in the world and maybe in the history of the world. So nerd out with me for a second. What is the difference between a dialect and a language. Make some people mad here. What is it? <laughs> uh, I think my favorite, sort of the classic quote about this is that a language is a dialect with an army and a navy. Uh, <laughs> basically the idea is that it's about political power and yeah. you know, one group can say, can kind of establish the way it speaks as yeah. the language, an official language, they mm -hmm. standardize how it's written and they promote it through an education system and so on. Uh, for linguists, we talk about mutual intelligibility, mm -hmm. whether two people speaking 
you know, the way they speak, how much they can understand each other. Uh, one, you know, kind of rule of thumb, but of course there's a lot of complexity to it, is if you share something like 80% or more of your core vocabulary with somebody else, yeah. you might be said to speak two dialects of the same language. Now, that doesn't mean that one is derived from the other. Yeah. Um, you know, standard Italian, which is based on kind of um, what was spoken in Florence and Tuscany, mm -hmm. is just a different type of Italian than, you know, Neapolitan Italian from the South or Sicilian. It's not that the dialects are derived from the standard language, right. it's that they all kind of derive historically from something. Grew in their different ways. Exactly. It's like watching the first five minutes of train spotting. You know it's something <laughs> like English, but right. it takes you a few minutes to click in. Yeah, yeah. Glaswegian English is uh, a special kind. Glaswegian English. That's yeah. why we invite smart people here. You can classify <laughs> down to that level. So I'm sure that that whole description kills at linguist conferences where it's the difference between power and whether they have an army if it's a language. But what difference does it make? What would we be negatively impacted by if all those endangered languages that you guys are studying and working to preserve went away? The languages of the world, whether it's talking about the approximately 7,000 languages or the tens of thousands of dialects and varieties, um, really contain a great deal of the world's information and culture, uh, a great deal of its literature. Most of these are, are oral languages that, that, that preserve musics and, and local knowledge and scientific knowledge and historical knowledge. Yeah. Uh, they are, you know, as, 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 as people acknowledge, I mean, they are the sort of keys to culture. Uh, and, uh, you know, the disappearance of a language, and we're now talking about many languages which really have just one speaker left, wow. including many indigenous languages of, of North America, Native American languages, where there's really just one native speaker left. Um, you know, the, the loss of, of, of a language like that, um, you know, first of all, it's impacting the people, the cultural group, um, you know, who spoke that language, and that's really, you know, it's, it's always a reflection of power and history and, uh, racism, genocide, I mean, profound historical forces that have brought these languages to, to where they are. Uh, and then for the world as a, as a whole, it's, uh, you know, it's been compared to a bomb being dropped on the Metropolitan Museum or the Louvre. Wow. That really puts it into context. So in our last four minutes together, let's really drill down into Brooklyn. What neighborhood could I walk down and just get the most language absorption if I'm walking down the main drag? Is there a place that you could pinpoint? Oh, don't make me choose just one. Making uh, you choose at least one in Brooklyn. Okay, Come on. okay. No, Brooklyn is, you know, people talk about Queens. Queens, of course, is no one talks about linguistic Queens. diversity. Maybe not, not in Brooklyn, <laughs> that's true. But Brooklyn really is, you know, as linguistically diverse as really anywhere in the world, there are certain kind of microcosms in Brooklyn where you could say whole kind of universes yeah. within the borough. Uh, so you're looking about at just about every kind of Caribbean language uh, being spoken kind of in, in the whole extended world of Flatbush, right? Yeah. Uh, you're looking at just about every Jewish language being spoken kind of deeper into, uh, also deeper into kind of Flatbush, yeah. Midwood, Gravesend. Uh, you're looking at all of the languages of the former Soviet Union, pretty much. All of the major languages being spoken down kind of Brighton Beach, Bensonhurst area. Yeah. Um, you know, as, a, as one area, if I were to say, okay, go to one spot, yeah. uh, and there are other microcosms here, too, we could talk about. Lay it um, You know, get off the Q train around Cortellu Road, and uh, you can hear Himalayan languages, you can hear South Asian languages, you'll be close to Caribbean languages and Jewish languages. That's yeah. kind of one crossroads for uh, many of the languages and different language groups of Brooklyn. 
So it's official. Get off at the Q train at Cortellu and you will be in the Star Wars outpost <laughs> of linguistics. There are people from all over the world speaking their native tongues there. Listen to the soundscape, talk to people. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's hard, of course, to appreciate into, you know, languages you don't know what, the, what people are speaking or what it is. Yeah. Uh, but I think one of the things that we try to do at the Endangered Li Language Alliance, uh, through mapping languages, we're working on a language map of New York, through tours that we do, yeah. events, uh, is to get people to appreciate the linguistic landscapes of the city and kind of realize and enjoy and contribute to this incredible multilingualism that's all around us. So we know that Cortellu Road and Kensington Ditmas is a sort of great jumping off point, but tell us about what else is on the map. You've been working on a project that's mapping language across the city. What's that going to look like? Uh, there's hopefully will be a digital version as well as a kind of a giant kind of wall map uh, with hundreds of points showing you know, linguistically significant sites, not just sort of, you know, what you think of as a classic neighborhood, like, okay, this is Chinatown or this is a Bengali neighborhood, mm -hmm. but showing at a, at a deeper level, even languages where there's just a few speakers, uh, also the, 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 the sort of the historical linguistic diversity of New York. I mean, looking just where we are right now in the Brick Studio, if you just pan out sort of a mile radius from here, you know, there's a Belarusian church, there's, uh, you know, churches that are that are doing services or historically did services in Syriac, which is a language that, you know, connects back to the ancient Middle East. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, the place where the first Irish language uh, publication in the world was published, Where's which that? is now a, a Trader Joe's at uh, Court and Atlantic. No way. Uh, on that site. So you have, you know, you have just incredible linguistic diversity just really in almost anywhere you go in Brooklyn. That's phenomenal. Why is it important? Language is, you know, at the, at the heart of so many things. It's the heart of, you know, art and culture and history. And, uh, you know, I think we, it's just the air that we breathe, right? We take it for granted. We think, okay, language is just, we're just communicating. Um, and, you know, we, we may not know until it's lost what we're, you know, what we're, what we're, what we're losing here and what we had, this incredible diversity of ways to kind of speak and understand each other and communicate. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of justice as well. It's a matter of, uh, of, of difference being a core value of our society and something we can celebrate and, and enjoy and learn from. Well, thank you for using all of the technology we have at hand right at this moment to help preserve some of those languages. And who knows, maybe revive them in the future. So Ross Perlin, who's a writer, linguist, and co-director at the Endangered Language Alliance, thanks. Thanks so much, You may Brian. have just created a future linguist here today. <laughs> All right, well, coming up next, Maddie's Rocket, a graphic novel that will be featured at the Black Comic Book Festival this very month. A fantastic time-warping, genre-bending, Afro-futuristic voyage to the final frontier and beyond. That's how author Juno Diaz described the graphic novel created by our next guest, Tim Fielder. Mr. Fielder joins us today to talk about his novel, Maddie's Rocket, and the upcoming Black Comic Book Festival in Harlem. Thanks for joining us on Thank the Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So Maddie's Rocket. Yes. Let's start right here. Maddie is a young African-American woman, and she's on the cover of that graphic novel. Yes, she is. I uh, decided to do this book for my parents. I wanted to do a book uh, that, that I call Retro Afrofuturism, where it is, okay. it fills in the blanks 
uh, people who African Americans who were born in the early to mid 20th century mm -hmm. who didn't have those images of themselves when they were younger folks like you and I you know Lando Carrizzi yeah. we, we have Please. Lieutenant you heard I have the action figure that's what I'm saying you know hey we need to trade that but uh, <laughs> the thing is is what I wanted to do was to showcase this yeah. and to have my mother and father who I'm still blessed to have them here to be able to see this, see themselves, see my grandmother, who I love very much, my godmother. Yeah. And I wanted someone who looked like those elegant women, but in rocket ships. That is phenomenal. So tell us a little bit about her journey. All right, so uh, Maddie Wadi is an African-American. The story takes place in uh, three time periods. It takes place when she's an older woman, okay. a uh, late 20s, early 30s, and when she's a younger girl. And I wanted to tell her history of how she became a pilot. Hmm. And that becomes uh, a process in which I investigated things about her family, showed what she would become when she was older, when she becomes the head of this uh, international uh, interstellar conglomerate of flights yeah. you know, and transport. Uh, but I also wanted to show the adventure. So the story talks about how she becomes a space pilot. Okay. I can't reveal everything. Man. You no, save something for the fan customers. But listen, we're sitting here in a context where Thor is a woman mm -hmm. and uh, Iron Man is mm -hmm. now a woman. Yes. And Spider-Man is an African-American mm -hmm. teenager. Mm -hmm. So are we at peak blackness, womanness in the terms of creativity and opening our minds? Or is this a gimmick and we better gorge ourselves as much as we can before the next thing starts? Well, the reality is, is that uh, the United States has always been peak blackness. It's just been a matter of whether or not we were willing to acknowledge that from a commerce point of view. You know, okay. there's, there's something to be said when you see a, a, a toy commercial with the Black Panther in it, and you have grown people crying because it's the first time they've ever seen a superhero. Tickets are available now. That's right. I, don't worry, I already have mine. <laughs> Thank you, Fabulize. But um, I, uh, I wanted to do something where, within the context of diversity, which is what you're referring to, um, you have the direct sales market, right. which is predominantly services, traditionals, Spider-Man, mm -hmm. you know, Thor, you know, DC and Marvel, which yeah. is great. But then you have the independent market, which Get is Get nerdy with me for a second. Mm -hmm. then. Milestone, the situation yes. with them and their characters and their universe yes. being acquired, what does that mean for the broader landscape? I don't know if I would say acquired. They've always kind of, at least from my understanding, I don't know them that well, but uh, they always seem to operate okay. uh, within a context of being their own independent firm that had a licensing deal with DC. But I'm more, I'm really more into the Daoud and Yabwile, brother man, okay. that kind of thing. That's so, what I'm into. Uh, we have sparingly small mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. but a recent article in Black Enterprise mm -hmm. from October of last year yes. said the comic book industry mm -hmm. saw $1 billion mm -hmm. in annual revenue sales outside of the technology sector. Yes. Just from books mm -hmm. alone mm -hmm. for those sales led by Marvel and mm -hmm. DC and those folks. Mm -hmm. So what do people of color stand, where do we stand in that equation? Well, first of all, uh, understand that black comics, or I should say extend even further than that, mm -hmm. uh, Latino or Latinx comics, they've always existed. Yeah. Uh, Ricardo Padilla, these people have pushed this type of concept out there. But people who read those comics mm -hmm. exist as well, uh, which is why you have the Schumburg, that event. Yeah. And uh, these, it's all about knowing that these things exist. And right now we're, in my opinion, mm -hmm. at the, it's starting to groundswell, but we're getting to a point where 
people can access those materials at different commerce points. So that could be events, ah. that can be this book here is published in my own studio, Yeah. Uh, but you can buy it online, you can do it through mail order, right. uh, I go to events, I'm selling it through the library system, ISBN numbers, the whole thing has yeah. to be done that way to embrace technology and get your work out there. Okay, so before we go home, please tell us what I should be doing some weekend very soon up in Harlem. So this weekend, uh, the sixth annual uh, Schomburg Black Comic Book Festival, founded by Jerry Kraft, John Jennings, Deirdre Hallman, and Jonathan Gales, I believe. And they are doing it, and it's going to be a fire hazard because every black person within a uh, 100-mile radius is yes, going to be yes. converging on this one point, buying nothing but black comics by men, black women, black men, black kids. Yeah. Uh, think of it, The Walking Dead. Mm -hmm. It's like The Walking Dead. Right. But instead of zombies wanting to eat you, they want to buy black comics. Reed. Yes. Okay, that sold me. So that is phenomenal. <laughs> Thank you for coming by. You Thank you so much. Pleasure. The best energy and stories. And we love that Tim Fielder is here. So thank you for joining us today. And tomorrow, hopefully our girl Ashley will be back and with a glimpse into a revelatory book about Trump. No, it's not Fire and Fury. And a journalistic endeavor that seeks to chart a new course in digital media. Now, in the meantime, if you have any comments, suggestions, love letters, maybe story plots for graphic novels that you'd like to share, send them to us at 112BKComments at BrickArtsMedia.org. We hope to see you very soon. Bye now. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Hamasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.